This week, the Supreme Court delivered a long-awaited decision on whether or not it would repeal the one piece of judicial overhaul legislation passed by the Pure Right Coalition under Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Held on September 12th, the hearing in front of a full bench of all 15 Supreme Court justices made for a day-long media event. Citizens across the country became armchair legal experts and held watch parties even. So to parse out the ruling and how it may or may not rekindle fears of a societal schism, I, Amanda Borchel Dan, hosted my longtime colleague and friend, Times of Israel senior analyst Khaviv Rektigur, in my home for an informal but hopefully informative chat. So this week, as the Supreme Court redefines its own powers, we ask Khaviv Rektigur, what matters now? Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. Aviv, welcome again to my home. We're keeping this real. We have a couple sick kids in the background. We have some kindergarten action as well. And first of all, I just want to say Mazel Tov on your upcoming bar mitzvah for your firstborn child. Keeping it all real. Thank you, Amanda. It's busy week. <laughs> also, also in national affairs. A couple of things happened. Let's also just give a little bit of a time peg. We're recording on Wednesday morning this week. There is a very fateful Supreme Court decision that came down last night. There was an assassination of the deputy director of Hamas. Very important things are happening right now. But we are here to more drill down into the Supreme Court ruling and actually more than that, what it means for the country. So ahead of the ruling, there was a leaked version that came out, and that caused, I would say, a bombshell and an awakening of all those feelings that we had over the summer, over the past year, really, since January, I think, 4th, when the judicial overhaul legislation was announced by our Justice Minister, Yariv Levine. Would you agree that last week we started hearing a bit of the, the sizzle that we had had over the past year? Yeah, uh, the schedule was known. We knew that by the end of the year, there had to by the end of 2023, um, Chief Justice Estelle Chayut had to finish all her outstanding decisions uh, because she is retiring, and um, and this was the big one. And so we expected something to come down. She there was an option that she was going to say, 
you know, this I'm throwing this back to the Knesset, rewrite this for some specific problems. We know she was very she thought it was very problematic, but the decision was made that this was going to be a full ruling by all 15 justices. And so, yeah, for two weeks now, there's been a lot of exactly like you said, sizzling, percolating on the on the right. We've heard a lot of these little comments um, being thrown out on Twitter by Smotrich and Rotman and all these names that we haven't heard from all that much during the war. But well, these Smotrich, were the, yes, but yeah. right. But these were the central figures of the judicial fight. Correct. And in fact, because the full bench was heard on, I believe, September 12th, essentially we had until uh, January 12th for Esther Hayut, the former uh, Chief Justice, and Anat Baron, another justice who retired to state their positions because there's a three-month period after the final case for a justice who has retired. That's a a little bit complicated, but essentially what happened here is that because the former chief justice and Justice Baron wanted their opinions included, they had a deadline of January 12th to publish them. Right, and so why was it published by December 31st? Okay, so actually I think this is very interesting, and Shas proposed a a bill, essentially, that would extend that period to nine months instead of three months. And so, I don't know, it feels to me like the thinking was a couple of things. That one thing was, okay, if there is this extension, maybe some of the justices will change their position. Okay, that's number one. And number two, of course, the, the thinking could have been, no, you can't legislate on something like on a train that's already left the station. The, we already had this law in place when the hearing was set. So we just need to poof, get it out of there and publish the decision. I don't know. What do you think? So in other words, you're saying they were afraid that the legislation might actually advance and they didn't want to give it that time. And so they had to very, very quickly push through the decision and release it. Exactly. And in fact, um, former Justice Minister Guidon Sar, who is now part of the coalition, when this legislation was proposed by Shas, he said, if you're doing this to prevent some kind of schism, this legislation itself causes a greater schism because, of course, it is geared towards this particular decision. So we're actually here to talk about schism. And Khabib, since the ruling came out, we haven't really seen people taking to the streets. Yeah, everyone is somewhere else, obviously. There's well over 300,000 uh, soldiers uh, in the reserves. There's the standing army. There's the war in Gaza. There's the threat from the north. We know, for example, that the vast majority of Israelis, including a lot of voters for this coalition, want Netanyahu to step down after the war. We know that there's a huge trust deficit in this government. We know that there's a political um, earthquake coming after the war, whenever after the war is, as we enter this sort of counterinsurgency stage, at least in northern Gaza, that Gallant himself, the defense minister, said is going to take well over a year but nevertheless, there is going to be a point after the significant fighting. The reservists are starting to be sent home as of this last two weeks. And that political moment is coming. But until that political moment is coming, nobody has the ability to focus in on this. There's also a real thought, a real feeling on the right, that the judicial uh, proposal of the government, which was radical, which the government has admitted over the course of the fight over nine months was radical, which Netanyahu pretended at some point that he had stopped the most radical elements of the proposal. 
uh, for example, the 61 override. He hadn't, actually. It was going to advance, and, and he faced no other choice, especially in the... Um, uh, in the resignation of Gallant, that became the big sort of pivot, the tipping point in which suddenly all the labor unions and the industrial, you know, trade organizations, uh, both the employer and employee organizations of this economy, all began to declare strikes. And that was the moment when Netanyahu stepped back from the brink, just literally because the country was falling apart around him. Um, but he has pretended that actually it was his choice and he didn't want, right? He wanted a much more moderate reform. All of that debate, all of that very radical reform, there is a lot of, of guilt, a, a lot of sense on the right that they did this very badly. If you support judicial reform, this was probably the worst imaginable way to go about it. And we saw that at the very beginning, where there was this generic uh, support for judicial reform in the public at the very beginning of the process a year ago, 60-70% support for some version of judicial reform. And then I think two months in, by February or March, there's 25% support for the government's version of judicial reform. And so they have spent a year just shedding political capital, shedding public trust on this issue, polarizing the country to an extreme uh, Netanyahu hasn't won a poll, uh, an election poll, since January 2023. So there is a sense on the right that they really screwed up here and a desire not to return to that terrible, terrible mistake. And so all of those things are factors why really everybody is sort of moving on from the court decision immediately. Um, but the court decision itself, we shouldn't move on from it, at least in terms of looking at it and thinking about it, because it's profound. It is a change from anything that had ever been here before. And we have to figure out what we do with it. And, and, and it also tells us how we move forward. In other words, we need a constitutional answer to, to the question of judicial reform. Or eventually, at some point, when a new issue comes up and tears us apart, we're going we're gonna to have to have this fight anyway. So we need a, a healthy, good, thoughtful way of thinking through our constitutional problem. Because the court decision does show that it's very much still there. It's very much still alive. Right. There are very interesting uh, takeaways from this decision. And essentially, it has the micro and the macro. The micro was, of course, annulling the specific amendment to the basic law, which talks about reasonableness. But the macro is so much more important. So what was that macro? Right. So the court asked two questions. Should the reasonableness cancellation stand? And it was a very narrow vote. Eight out of 15 said it should not stand. So the Knesset canceled judges' ability to rule on government decisions with the judicial test of reasonableness. And the court canceled the government's, the Knesset's cancellation of the court's ability to rule on the... Okay, everybody understood that? Everyone can be reasonable now. Fine. <laughs> Anyone can be. Not Everyone. Just judge. Judges cannot cancel decisions based on reasonableness. This is a very minor change because law is a lot of semantics. And there is no serious or good or intelligent judge out there in the world, anywhere in the democratic world, and certainly our high court justices are intelligent judges, who can't then cancel something on other tests like proportionality and, and other things. And so this was a minor change. It was the substance of the appeal, but it was minor. But there was a deeper question. And that deeper question was, can the court strike down a basic law in general, in principle? 
This is a huge question, and it's a huge question because for 30 years, really since the passage of the Basic Law, Human Dignity and Liberty in 1992, but even in legislation long before, even in jurisprudence and judicial decisions long before that, the court has been explaining to us Israelis that basic laws are constitutional, and therefore it has canceled other decisions, other laws, other regulations, because they contradicted in the court's view the basic laws. And then the question now arose, and it first arose in 2019 with the uh, basic law um, Jewish nation state, where the court let the law stand. But it said, as it let the law stand, I have the right to judicially review basic laws. Law professors noticed that. The public did not. Today, this week, the court then said, remember that I have the right to review basic laws back from 2019? That's established precedent. Nobody complained then, or a few right-wingers complained, nobody else. Now I'm canceling a basic law. And on that decision, what's fascinating is it was right down the middle on canceling reasonableness or on letting the cancellation of reasonableness stand. It was eight to seven. It was 12 to 15 to three, excuse me, 12 to three. And even some count one other justice in that 12, meaning it would be 13 to two, depending upon how right, you read his Gail decision. Wiener, right, said sometimes, sometimes not. You can cancel a basic or something like, yeah, I think I... I, I Yes. In other words, even in the nuances, it leans even farther. There's a huge majority of this court, including a huge majority of conservatives. Uh, Justice Yechiel Kasher, Yosef uh, Elron, he said, you might sometimes be able to cancel basic law. I think he ruled against this one, but he said, in principle, you could. So he pulled another, right, 2019. Um, and so you had a lot of justices, four or five justices, who are conservatives, who think that the cancellation of reasonableness has to stand because the Knesset passed it legally and it's legitimate but also that the court does have the right to review basic laws. And so the court's power, okay, it, we're a year out. Levine presented his his uh, first original massive judicial reform in early January 2023. We're in early January 2024. We're exactly a year out. And the very thing that Levine was trying to strip away from the court and, and weaken the court and push back from the court, the court has now earned powers quietly with everyone's tacit agreement that it never had before. So this judicial reform has, I don't know what the nice way to put it is, failed? Backfired? Backfired spectacularly, boomeranged. This did not work. That, unfortunately, also means that this is not the end. This is the beginning. Okay, so that's really a good question. And I wouldn't say that the court was so quiet about this, because definitely Esther Hayut, the whole way through, was making comments against, strong comments, against the proposed legislation, which is an interesting thing, I believe, that she's so, she's so outspoken about something that eventually she probably knew even back then that you have, she would have to rule upon. And that's that's a little weird to me. I don't know. What do you think about that? It's new. Uh, justices had a longstanding culture of you, you talk through your ruling. And if someone wants to know what you decide, you have to read. And Chayut, and she, she's not the first, but she, but she certainly took it to, an ex, to, to, to places it hadn't been before. Um, Chayut said, you know, there's such a campaign against the court. And that campaign is hurting the court in public trust. It's still vastly more trusted than the people campaigning against it and the other branches of government. But nevertheless, it needs it needs trust more than the others. It doesn't have battalions and it doesn't have police forces. All it has is public trust. And so the court can't afford to shed it. And so the court needs to ha- start 
fighting back and arguing in the public domain. And she has started to do that. And that is new. I don't know yet if it helped or hindered, you know, her case. And the case is, of course, as you said, a matter of public trust. So you sent me a few headlines from a, a wide variety of Israeli media, and that gives some indication into what Israelis across the spectrum are thinking. So let's just go through a couple of them and, and show what they say. So Arut Sheva, I put on, I'm going to go from what I think is kind of the far right to the far left. And in the middle, I'm a little confused who's where. Okay. So the first one that I pulled out was uh, Arut Sheva. And essentially, the headline here is remarking upon the idea that it was one vote that changed everything. So we just discussed, of course, that there are two issues here, and there was one vote on the specific reasonableness clause or the reasonableness amendment, but that the greater issue is is more, uh, has a majority rule. So what do you think about this one vote idea? Yeah, that was interesting. The headline is uh, reasonableness canceled on a single vote margin. And the headline in on the left is huge majority of the court <laughs> says it can overrule basic laws. So if you are supporting this court decision, you are saying, look at the huge majority. And if you don't like the court decision, you're saying it's a teeny little right. And that's an argument about the future, because if it is a thin vote, right, then the future, how we essentially what the right wants to do now, what Levine said toward the end when he understood he wasn't going to get most of what he wants, was the judicial appointments is the most important thing. And so this is essentially the begin. the, res- the, the right-wing response of Orocheva is the argument implicitly, we better get some conservative justices in there because it was so close. The underline is also kind of interesting. It says blah, blah, blah. And this is the first place at the first time in the history of the state that the Supreme Court has interfered in a basic law interfered that's that's a really interesting word too yeah i think it's uh true that it's the first time it struck down an amendment to a basic law it's not the first time it explained an amendment to a basic law interpreted it in ways maybe that the, the original legislation didn't intend or the original legislator didn't intend but it is the first time it literally canceled one Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I've found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll privilege to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times.
Okay, so now we have Israel Hayom, which is uh, to the left of Arut Sheva, but still considered a pretty conservative paper. But its headline is is very uh, neutral, I would say. It's something like the annulment of the reasonableness law is a, a ruling that changes the construction or the face of the Israeli regime. Mashuk, something like this. Right. I think it's it's um it's gentler language, yeah. But it's making an, a, a huge argument and and a, and a massive critique of the court, because it is saying, it's essentially saying the problem of the basic laws, the problem of the basic laws, and that's the heart of everything that's going on here. The problem of the basic laws is what the justices said, and they talk about this in Israel Hayom, and Israel Hayom is important because it's what Likud voters read, and it's what the mainstream right. Ahut Sheva is the far right. Israelium is the mainstream right. And what the mainstream right is reading and thinking about this court decision has to do with this real deep question of what basic laws are. The basic problem is nobody treats basic laws like a constitution. The Knesset, because the court said basic laws are unconstitutional and never struck down basic laws, the Knesset has developed this unhealthy habit of calling things basic laws because basic laws don't need majorities special majorities, basic laws to pass them, you literally just have to slap at the top of the page, basic law, and you can pass anything. Basic law, how you elect dog catchers. Anything can be a basic law. And since anything can be a basic law, the Knesset has actually passed something like 25 amendments to the basic laws just in the last five, six years. And so if the Knesset is doing anything, if the Knesset essentially is evading all judicial review with the words basic law, and there's no constitutional requirement in the sense of special majorities, in the sense of broad agreement of, or, or checks and balances of different institutions, different houses of parliament, whatever, every constitutional order needs some kind of, right, then the Knesset doesn't treat these as, as constitutional. And therefore, the court is now saying the amendment that we're canceling on reasonableness was what, the, this is called the doctrine of the unconstitutional constitutional amendment. And the, the theory the court is using is basically, if basic laws can be changed by anyone at any time, literally just a happenstance majority of one coalition, 61 to 59 vote can change every basic law. Or most, there are a few basic laws with high with demands for special majorities. Most do not have those demands, and a new one wouldn't need that demand. And so 61 could take away the right to vote. 61 could, for certain groups, 61 could delay elections until after wars. Israel is in a state of emergency for 75 years now in some, in some legal sense. What does after the war mean, right? 61 can do things that would annihilate the entire system. And so until basic laws are a constitution and have the weight of broad majorities in the country, as long as you can drive massive constitutional change, as Yariv Levine showed us is possible to do, basic laws can't count as a constitution because you could dismantle democracy with a simple majority vote. And that's the court's argument. Now, how does Yisrael Ayom interpret that argument? Therefore, the court gets to decide what the heck our constitutional system is. And now the court can just write a basic law or cancel basic laws at will. What prevents 15 justices, by the way, not really elected, we have one of those systems where the courts are very, very independent, unlike the system in America or whatever. And by the way, by the way, we only have 13 right now because our justice minister won't sit the committee to appoint more, by the way. Right. Move on. Right. And so they can now cancel basic laws. What prevents the court from canceling basic, other than the fact that they're enlightened liberals that we happen to like right at this particular cycle? What prevents them from canceling our rights willy-nilly? The problem I have, and the problem I've had for a year, and the reason I can't get swept up in one side or the other, is that both are absolutely correct. 
The Knesset has pathetically and horrifically mistreated our constitutional order. Netanyahu, for his little trick with Gantz of a rotation agreement so that he wouldn't go to a fourth round of elections back in 2020, created um, created the uh, parity government to prove to Gantz that he would definitely not cheat him. And Just then, of course, he went on parity, to cheat. parity, not parody. Parity, yes. Parity, P-A-R-I-T-Y. Parity government, in which there are two prime ministers, essentially, and two cabinets, and a prime minister doesn't control the other half of the cabinet, and that's a new institution written into the Israeli constitution, a dozen changes to the uh, con- to the basic laws right there, just for a little parliamentary trick, for a little, essentially, coalition trick that Netanyahu then went and violated anyway, right? And so, um, the Knesset doesn't think that the Knesset majority, the simple majority that rules at any given time, doesn't think it's reined in by any constitutional order of any kind. And it's shown us that again and again and again. But courts can't run countries. And so we don't have checks and balances. We don't have direct election of Israeli MKs. So they essentially work for the party leaders who appoint them. And if they work for party leaders, that means the parliament works for the government because the party leaders are the government in our parliamentary system. And so we have almost no checks and balances outside of that court, no real constitutional tradition that is strong enough to prevent the kind of games Netanyahu has been playing with the basic laws for the last three, four years. And the court now stepping in and saying, you can't take away reasonableness because that's an unconstitutional constitutional amendment, heightens the problem. And the government and the Knesset have no answer because they refuse to produce other checks and balances on their own power. And so we have people, we have a profoundly unserious right that is correct about the overpowered court. And I'm sorry to say this, and a lot of people at Times of Israel disagree with me, um, but it's still a gentle and serious and thoughtful debate. Utterly irresponsible court that is willing to play games with its own power, is willing to decide that a constitution that it claimed was a constitution when it wanted to cancel something else is no longer a constitution when it wants to cancel it. I get these doctrines. I get that lawyers can come up with unconstitutional constitutional amendment doctrines, but that's what lawyers are. They're semanticists and they're people who can come up with doctrines. Ordinary people. I'm a very ordinary person. Ordinary people. I'm literally sitting here in jeans and a flannel shirt. I don't even know where I bought a flannel shirt in Israel, but somewhere I found one. It smells so good, actually. (laughs) You're detergent. We'll talk about that later. But um, ordinary people, genuinely ordinary people, need to know what reigns in Benjamin Netanyahu in the system, deep in the system. They need to know what kinds of checks and balances everybody agrees we're all committed to. And that's true of judges, and that's true of politicians. I happen to not like some of the politicians in this government, a few of the furthest of the furthest ones. But nevertheless, I need to know that also on the, that someone who does like them knows that in the next government that might be on the other side of the aisle, what reigns them in. We don't have anybody doing that work. And that's, I think, the real tragedy here, is that this court kept... It pushed forward with, it pushed forward not just with the fight. I don't share Smotrich's anger. He came out and said, this is irresponsible. You're coming out during a war. You're going to divide us again. That's not the problem. The problem is that they move forward without telling us anything new and useful about the future. Now, the Knesset writes constitutions, not the court. But the court can even just talk about what the deeper problem is. And it, and it didn't do that here. Okay, so everything you just said is kind of reflected in the Ynet uh, headline, which was Levine achieved the opposite result. The court, the court's activism has gone up a level. 
right, has been ramped up. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Right. And they're right to blame Levine for it. It wasn't the court that set this up. Levine set this up. Now, Channel 12, which is also very popular, like Ynet is very popular, and I would put them both pretty much in the middle, maybe slightly left because they are media. What can you do? But uh, Channel 12 was talking about the day after the decision. Okay, now they have a question. Is this its swan song? Or is the struggle about to begin again? Basically, that's what they're saying. So that is the question, isn't it? I mean, are we going to see, you talked about after the war, but are we going to see the same passion, the same drive over these issues again after the war? Because everything here in Israel is before October 7th. And after October 7th, our whole conversation here today has been very before October 7th. It's been kind of nice to return to that existential angst that we were all feeling for a year almost until October 7th. But you just have to wonder, are the people going to take to the streets in the same way? Is it going to be as divisive as it was? I think, yeah, we we emotionally, I think a lot of us feel in Israel that our own internal divides were scarier over the past 12 months than anything the enemy can do to us, even at their worst. Not in terms of the victims, obviously, but in terms of the sense of foreboding for the future, the sense of what does our future hold. If we, if democracy is weakening, which half of Israelis thought it was, give or take 10%, depending on the month, but nevertheless half thought it was, that is a vastly more dangerous enemy and, and dangerous prospect than anything Hamas can do to us. Um, and so I, I, I do think that that's the feeling among Israelis. Look, over the last year, we learned, we learned, we, we didn't think, we didn't know this, we didn't realize this. We'd had these shallow debates about the court that were very sort of populist before by the left and the right, but we learned how few protections we actually have. Netanyahu, over the course of um, trying to sort of mollify some of the opposition at the beginning of this process of the of the fight over the judicial reform, Netanyahu offered a couple of times on national television a, a bill of rights. We're going to weaken the court's ability to rule on these tests like reasonableness, but there'll also be an explicit right to free speech in Israeli law. Israel, it's not unusual not to have a bill of rights. Um, Australia has no Bill of Rights of any kind, right? It, it exists in parliamentary democracies. But in Israel, no parliamentary democracy has so few checks and balances built into the system as us. I don't think. I've never heard of one in a year of trying to find out. Um, and so for us, a Bill of Rights would mean we can turn to courts to protect, for example, our right to protest if the officer of the police won't give us a permit which now you go to the court and appeal against the unreasonableness of that officer's decision. Well, if I have a right to protest in a Bill of Rights, I can go to that court even without a reasonableness test. Do you want to cancel the reasonableness test? Give me an explicit right to free speech, freedom of protest, freedom of this, freedom of that, freedom of religion, freedom of all these things. But don't you think, Khabib, that many people in Israel are more like, I have the right to wake up in the morning. I have the right to live in my house and not be attacked by terrorists. I have the right to not have missiles drop on my head. I have the right to see my son again, who was sent off to Gaza, things like that. I mean, don't you think that the perspective of almost everyone in Israel has shifted? Okay, so first of all, you're absolutely right. There's no question that the war 
is first. The enemy is not just Hamas, the enemy is all of the branches of Iran that have now surrounded us. We woke up to this vast, vast danger, and what began on October 8th wasn't a war against Hamas. It was a long war against all of the different branches of Iranian efforts to destroy us, on which Iran itself has sacrificed some double-digit percentage of its economy over the last 15 years. They really need us dead, and they need us dead because that's the only path for Islam to redeem itself in the eyes of God. No reason to get into that now, but the point is they really, truly, deeply, profoundly need us dead. And we have to start responding to that seriously. And so, yes, there's now a long war, a painful war. It'll have many fronts. It'll take years. But this won't wait forever. This will wait now. There's still hostages. There's still other things that feel urgent, and this isn't. But we didn't just learn that we don't have enough constitutional checks, that we don't have enough institutions, that we don't have enough, that we didn't write a proper constitution at any point. We need to. We didn't just learn that. We learned how intensely the different tribes of Israeli society fear the pendulum of power swinging over to the other tribe. In other words, we learned how scared secular Israelis are of Haredi Israelis. Haredi Israelis are of secular Israelis. Jews and Arabs are of each other in this pendulum swing, or at least Arabs are of the Jewish majority. We learned how frightened we all are of each other and how distrustful we all are of each other. And all of that was the lesson leading into October 7th. So I don't think this is going anywhere. I think it's coming back. It's coming back when the war lets it come back. I don't know when that is, but there will be a time when this comes back. And when it comes back, um, we will notice that the court decision doubled down on the problem, doubled down on the question. In that in that sense, it opened a new phase. It didn't end this issue. I don't think, as Channel 12 raises the question, which is, did we? is this over or is this just entering a new phase? It's definitely entering a new phase. Um, and and the answer is going to be, you know, it might take us a decade to get to the answer, but it won't end until the answer is getting our own house in order. And that's on both sides of the debate. We need a court. This was one of the fascinating things in the decision is Justice Solberg. Justice Solberg is a conservative. Noam Solberg. Noam Solberg. And, and, and he's, a, he's a conservative, and he also is against both things. In other words, he's in the minority on both questions. And... But his, in, but there was an interesting point where the government, when it tried to sell the reasonableness clause, said this is the Solberg framework for limiting the court's use of reasonableness. And Solberg had suggested something in a speech a few years ago. Solberg explains here that that's not what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about legislation to limit the right of a judge to use that reasonableness test. What he was saying was the judges need to limit themselves. He was talking about a new ju- about changing the culture and changing the theories of the judiciary internally. And I think there's a lot of wisdom there. I don't know if you know it can come from the Knesset or not come from the Knesset, but there's a lot of wisdom in saying there's not a whole lot of things the Knesset can actually do to limit the ability of a judge to use a reasonableness test because, again, they will use the proportionality test in exactly the same way. It's So much of it is semantics. But if the culture inculcated in the judiciary is one of restraint, you will solve a lot of the problems. And so the just the judiciary needs to do the work inside itself to un, to to create a judiciary that's healthier. But at the same time, that's doubly true, and I mean triply true. I mean it's ten times more true of the Knesset because the Knesset has much more power and therefore much more responsibility, as Spider Man taught us. You Knesset, you want to weaken 
the single greatest check on majoritarian power in a system with almost no checks on majoritarian power? Give us other checks on majoritarian power. And there's a thousand things the Knesset can do. Give us direct election of MKs so that there's a real Knesset separate from a government, from an executive branch. And you don't even need the primary system for that. We have very bad experience with primaries in Israel. They were instituted sometime in the 70s. They turned into the single most corrupt part of Israeli governance. Not not every party has them, of course. Not every party now has them, and all parties are weakening them, and all parties are afraid of them because they destroyed parties. But there are ways to do primaries that don't have those problems. For example, there's this, uh, in Scandinavia, they have the back of the ballot primary. where you, We've talked about this during the judicial reform, back in the before times, where you take the ballot out of the, out of the box of ballots for the party you like, and on the back of that ballot, you can rank the people. And so the only people voting in the party primary are the people who are voting for the party, but also the act of voting in the primary is the act of voting for the, I know the zip goes in both directions. Khabib, and I suddenly you have independent MKs. This There's is... so much the Knesset can do, and it needs to do it. And then, I'm sorry, one last sentence. When you've done that, when you've given us checks and balances, when you've said, I'm not going to rule in majoritarian rule where 61 votes can change the constitutional order willy-nilly like Yariv Levine tried to do. When you have that, then you come and say, now, this is a really unusual and unhealthy court. No, govern- no country has a court quite this powerful, and it's not reasonable anymore because we have serious, thought-out checks and balances with broad agreement, written by a Knesset, elected by the people. We need a healthier court. So that's step two of a step one. Let's give us the proper constitution that we need. I think step three would be, of course, getting the Scandinavian people at least on our, our roads and preventing all their Israeli traffic. But I think our conversation is coming to a close because your beautiful daughter is here presenting you with a fairy tale book, and I think it's time to move on. Yes. The two sick kids at home really changes journalism, doesn't it? Even when it's at Amanda's home. Yes. <laughs> so, Chaviv, again, Mazel Tov for the Bar Mitzvah, and we'll speak again soon. Great to be here, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Aviv and I met in July 2005. A month later, he was in Gaza covering the disengagement, and I, seven months pregnant with twins, edited a weekly magazine from behind a desk. Part of the reason behind the decision taken by then-Prime Minister Ariel Sharon to, in fact, go ahead with the disengagement was to reduce the lives lost protecting those relatively few who lived in Gush Katif. Now, many of the babies who were born that year in Israel are serving in Gaza, protecting all of our homes. This podcast was produced and edited by The Podwaves. Have a comment about this or other episodes of What Matters Now? Email us at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Look for more What Matters Now episodes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Until next week, shalom. Shalom.